It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Yeah. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but there's no need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen that no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, but the system doesn't gang. The government will hire in a combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the security to get down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And blue. That's right, friends and neighbors, right here in the dark heart of the city, old Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy welcome you to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a rampart of righteousness in a ridiculous world. <laughs> I'm Joe Aldenevdi, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand videos, posts, podcasts, all sorts of stuff. I'm medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And together we are the dynamic duo. We are the prodigious pair, the courageous couple. And we are here for one purpose and one purpose alone. And what is that, sir? To help you keep it together, <laughs> even if everything else falls apart. And everything else is falling apart. If just, no, it's not. Just look at the headlines. It's all good. It's all going to be fine. Friends and neighbors. <laughs> Life will work out, honey. It always does. It does, yeah. Or something. <laughs> Just when you think it's bad, it all turns around. Oh, that is know. the eternal op. That's the bloom, and I guess I'm just the doom. <laughs> Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a disastrous duck? Well, our attorney says don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists, nor is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right, but when society is at the brink, it's got to make you think that somebody's got to take up the slack and keep their people healthy, Jack. You know what? That's true. Those are called couplets. Couplets? When you have two lines that rhyme together. (laughs) So I just uh, was reading some old literature books, and indeed they refer to couplets, and these are indeed couplets. Well, and guess what? That person that has to keep their people healthy... Jack, <laughs> might just end up being you. So show the world that you've got more sense than a backpack full of baboons and get some training and education. And while you're at it, 
How about some supplies and a quality medical kit to go along with all that knowledge? And what better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster. They'll make your workplace, your school, your church safer. And they're designed by a real-life medical doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Are you real life or you pretend? I, uh... Are you a cartoon character or real? No, I'm more of a (laughs) mummy. A mummy? Or a a meat puppet. (laughs) (laughs) What? I don't know what that is. You're silly. I heard that somewhere. A meat puppet. (laughs) Um, I don't even know. I how think to I I heard that, that on, on Die Hard with a the Bruce Willis, puppet. the original Die Hard. I'm not a meat puppet. Is that what he said? <laughs> I don't know. Hey, yes. you out there? I'm telling you, compare our kits for quality, content, cost with anybody else's stuff, and you're going to agree that our kits are the ones that you need in your medical storage. Don't take our word for it. Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. See what people just like you have to say about our kits and service. On top of all that, by the way, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account. That's coming up soon, so just let us know you need the paperwork uh, in the comments section of your order or just send us an email uh, at Podcast, and sure enough, we'll connect with you. And speaking yep. of how to connect with us, well, you know, we learn as much from you as you do from us. So throw a nugget of knowledge our way and connect with the geezer and the goddess. That's right. <laughs> and here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. What are you doing? Get off the computer. I'm writing buddy. to someone who's trying to sign up for a class in November. Oh, all right. We'll see. Yeah, see ha. All right. Well, so you're actually doing something Sianna. awesome. Awesome. Sianna. So if you guys come to our class in Weston on November 17th, Weston, South Florida. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can meet Sianna. Hopefully she can get this worked out. Oh, my gosh. Sometimes our. PayPal checkouts and the store, all these computers do weird things. It depends on where you are and what your internet is. But you can always contact us at... And that's exactly what she did, and I appreciate it. At DR Bones. Writing back to her, drbonespodcast at AOL.com. See, folks, I do get back with you. Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We have a Facebook page. You can get all the resources from Doom and Bloom on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show, and don't forget our YouTube channel, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. That's right, and our other podcast, all about special current events, things happening right now. American Survival Radio broadcasts from all sorts of land-based radio stations throughout the U.S. of A. And also this podcast, the Survival Medicine Hour, broadcast from KYH Radio in Utah. Thanks, guys. We love the folks in Utah, that is for sure. Well, National Preparedness Month is over, and gosh, I hope you added some medical supplies in case of a disaster. I know you got to hope for the best, but you're kidding yourself if you don't prepare for the worst. You know, I can't read the headlines these days without wondering when the Civil War is going to start. Certainly, at least rhetorically, it's already started, and we just don't have Abraham Lincoln to let us know about the better angels of our nature, as he once said. So I hope that you did something for National Preparedness Month and got yourself a little bit more prepared for the slings and arrows that life may throw at you. Hey, also I wanted to say that our book on antibiotics and infectious disease is 
now moving yep, along the text very it, nicely text is completed Yay. we have all of the images for the book oh, over boy, that... over a hundred of them oh and i know that was a it, lot so, of work so we are very very pleased with it or getting it formatted and hopefully it will be out in tara a, tara is formatting for us two. thank you tara all right we appreciate <laughs> shout we appreciate, out that's all right there you go and so we're getting that done and hope to have it on amazon and uh, I'm thinking, other end of store. Beginning of November. In the beginning. I'm, beginning I'm, of November. See, I was thinking I'm, mid to late. I am got my hands together, and I'm saying a prayer. And if all goes well, yes, maybe the. I'm. You know what? I'm going to wow. shoot for November 12th. I'm going to actually put a date out there. All right. Well, I'm going to say November nineteenth, <laughs> twentieth. Where you got it? She always knows there's the bloom and there's the doom again. <laughs> oh my gosh. I have got to do something gonna, about that. You know, not a, neither of us are going to remember that we actually guessed this. <laughs> you do know that, right? We'll see. We'll, we'll put the pool together. We're see, not going to remember we put did a buck, this. Put a buck in the pool and we'll see who, who wins. Hey, and while so we're. Funny. Well, oh, I believe, yeah. you know what? Once um, you actually finish writing the um, details mm -hmm. for Amazon, do you, know, do you know that they'll put oh, it yeah. up for pre order? Oh, good. We could do that. At some point. I'm not sure when, how early they do pre-order, but they'll actually do allow pre-orders. Okay. Well, guys, just keep, keep track of, out. yeah, keep an eye out on the, on the website at doombloom.net. We'll make announcements as more news comes out. And of course, this podcast. And there's nothing and, like it, which I think is so interesting. Right. It's true. It's the, No all one of, else has thought to do this. All about the antibiotics that you can obtain in fish or uh, bird form that are the same as human antibiotics. They are human antibiotics. And what they can actually, what kind of infectious diseases they can take care of, what kinds they can't take care of, right. and how to recognize the ones that, that can be taken care of, how to use them diseases. wisely. You've covered a lot of infectious wow. diseases. Yeah, yeah I, I was expecting about, you know, 30,000 words in this book, and I think I hit 60. Something thousand. And we were expecting about 40 images, and we're over 100. Yeah, 100. No. So, <laughs> so, well, so well, a bigger project than we thought. Under, we're going to throw under, something out. Under-expect and over-deliver. <laughs> okay, that's us. That's always been us, as a matter of fact. Hey, while we're talking about infections and antibiotics, let's talk a little bit about respiratory infections. You know, we're heading into flu season, after all. It's going to start getting cold soon. And people are going to be spending more time inside. And the interesting thing is it's not the cold weather that gets you sick. It's being in cramped quarters with all sorts of people breathing all their nasty, nasty germs on you. That's what does it. Absolutely. Absolutely, darling. And so let's talk a little bit about some of the bacterial infections that we talk about in the book and how to deal with them. And let's see, um, I guess a good start would always be bronchitis and pneumonia, respiratory infections. Remember that most of the upper respiratory infections that you see, the common cold and even influenza, those are viral diseases and not really help much by antibiotics, but a lot of bronchitis and pneumonia do have a bacterial origin. Uh, some, uh, at least some infections do a much higher percentage than do for upper respiratory infections like cold, obviously, and things like that. Uh, there are also secondary infections. If you get, if you're sick enough and your immune system is weakened enough, there are bacterial secondary infections that invade a weakened victim of a viral illness, and when they occur, they tend to be in the lower airways. Well, that makes sense. I mean, if you go into battle, 
after a couple of days, people are worn out. If the other side reinforces their troops and comes in for a second wave, you are less able to take care of that. True that. So that those additional troops that come along after a couple of days of, of just fighting one set has now increased what you've got to do, and you're exhausted. Your immune system has used up all it's got. I mean, it really weakens you, and so when this other bacteria, or this possibly had a virus the first time, and now a bacteria comes along and says, hey, look, that person is weak. Let's take a hold and really make them sick. Aha. Aha. They take advantage of your your weak state. Well, you're, I'll tell you what's not weak is your brain power, because you put together an awesome analogy there. <laughs> I'm misanalogy. And you're, at, what yes. point, at what point have you not understood that I'm misanalogy? And I'm misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You're not a miss at all. You're a mister. I'm mister understood. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Mister mis, Mr. Misunderstood. There you go. Well, anyhow, here we are being silly again. Uh, it's important to realize that there are going to be these lower airway bacterial infections, inflammations of the airways like bronchitis, inflammation of the lung tissue itself. That's called pneumonia. And a lot of these are bacterial in nature. As a matter of fact, bacterial pneumonia has been given the dubious title, the old man's friend, because it stops the suffering of the elderly. And guess how it does that? By ending their lives. Well, there are many different microbes that cause pneumonia and bronchitis. Uh, The incubation period for most lower respiratory infections, that means the the time that it takes between being exposed to a particular bacteria and actually starting to get symptoms, that's the incubation period. And the incubation period for most lower respiratory infections is only about one to three days. That means that you'll begin to experience ill effects from the disease pretty darn soon after you're first exposed. Now, whether it's bacterial or viral in origin, fever is a common symptom of respiratory infections. Temperatures may tend to get higher and worse over time when bacteria is the cause, though. So you might have a very high fever, and it may get worse over time rather than better just on its own, with a viral infection, fevers usually improve after a few days. Now, if there's a period of improvement followed by the, the return of a fever even higher than the original fever, well, that may signal that your viral illness is over, but you got infected secondarily with bacteria, especially if you have some kind of other illness or you're an old, old man like myself. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about lung anatomy, lung Lungs have these little bitty air sacs that are at the end of tiny airways called bronchioles. The air sacs are called alveoli. They go to the bronchioles. The bronchioles go to the bronchi, which are the bigger airways, and they go up to your windpipe, which is also known as a trachea. And going all the way down to the lung tissue itself, the alveoli, these are sacs of air, essentially, that absorb oxygen when you inhale. And in pneumonia, alveoli become filled with fluid, inflammatory fluid with all sorts of bacteria in it and white blood cells and, you know, your body's effort to try to take care of it and deal with it. And it also, all of this winds up making it difficult to transport oxygen to body tissues. You have trouble absorbing oxygen in, because these air sacs are now just filled with fluid. And so the symptoms you classically see with this include things like cough. We talked about fever. 
a phlegm is usually a mucus usually very very common uh, shortness of breath and of course chest pain that goes along with having difficulty breathing bronchitis happens when the airways that carry oxygen from your windpipe to your lungs become inflamed so you're not going all the way down into the alveoli but you're in the bronchus or maybe even to the bronchioles the little bitty airways that actually physically attach to the alveoli when this happens the lining becomes clogged with mucus and it causes coughing and more of a wheezing you hear like wheezing sounds as and sort of musical sounds almost as you are listening with a stethoscope of course there is phlegm that also occurs this is usually well if it's bacterial usually yellowish or grayish although honestly you a lot of respiratory infections may be associated with a certain color of mucus but it's not always a sure diagnosis so yes yellow sputum may be associated with bronchitis but the phlegm is just as likely to be whitish or grayish in color yellow sputum can also be a sign of pneumonia and even you might see it with non-infectious conditions things like asthma may give you a, a yellowish kind of mucus that gets stuck there and hard to get out now many different bacteria have been implicated as the pathogen the disease causing organism that's a pathogen in pneumonia but a few are much more common than others it should be noted that without lab studies though many pneumonias caused by different pathogens sort of appear pretty similar they actually sort of appear like the flu with a very deep cough and lasts a long time it's sometimes a challenge to choose the right therapy here and that is indeed a problem there let's talk about a few types of bacterial pneumonia besides the usual signs and symptoms i just mentioned there are some additional clues to some of them that might help make the diagnosis and help you decide what treatment would make the most sense now there's something called streptococcus pneumonia but and a lot of people have uh, referred to it as pneumococcal pneumonia and so it's associated with a bacteria called streptococcus and this looks a little different in that it's usually associated with sort of rusty colored phlegm and so the mucus comes out looks sort of rusty colored that's because there are some red blood cells in it not enough to make it frankly bloody but it makes it look sort of rusty colored now the most it's the most common type honestly of bacterial pneumonia uh, not the most common type of, of pneumonia but the most common type of bacterial pneumonia and it is something that you would treat primarily with family uh with uh, drugs in the penicillin families but you know nowadays there are so many resistant strains you might actually be better off taking a sulfa drug uh, an erythromycin or a zithromax uh, z-pack for it or even something like cipro although cipro does have a number of uh, side effects that could be dangerous and it's something we'll talk about we talk it's something we talk about in the book as a matter of fact uh, all of those the drugs that i just mentioned and all of the risks and side effects and the, and the reasons for which you might use them uh, then there's another kind of pneumonia called legionella you may have heard of the uh, veterans from foreign legions who got together in philadelphia and wound up a bunch of them getting sick a number of them dying from an unusual pneumonia it was first identified i think this was in the 70s or early 80s and that is not only associated with lung symptoms but also associated with abdominal pain with diarrhea uh, in old folks they wind up getting dehydrated and, and therefore become confused that's what killed a lot of these veterans of foreign wars uh, vfw guys because they're of course they 
were, were in World War II or Korea and they were older folks. Uh, so this is something that we're seeing more and more often, by the way, in big cities, especially in housing projects because of contamination of cooling units that they have in the top of these big giant uh, high rises where they, uh, thousands of people live. And so something like that, for something like that, you would use uh, a Z-Pak or an erythromycin. That family of drugs is called macrolides, and we talk about those in the book as well. That would be a reasonable choice for that particular type of, of pneumonia. Then there's Klebsiella pneumonia. That is associated with a very dark, bloody, frankly bloody sputum. Looks like cherry preserves, as a matter of fact. That's how what it looks like. That's how much blood is in it. And the funny thing is that Klebsiella is actually a, a normal inhabitant of your intestines. There's also some uh, strains of it on your skin. Uh, and it's perfectly fine there, actually. A very normal inhabitant there, but it's dangerous if it invades lung tissues. So that is something that is a big problem. That, that can be life-threatening. They do suggest uh, Cipro or flor other fluoroquinolones in that circumstance, but usually you need intravenous antibiotics, antibiotics that you really can't get without a prescription. There's mycoplasma pneumonia. You probably have heard of walking pneumonia, and that's caused by a particular type of bacteria that's called mycoplasma. And that's associated uh, with swelling of lymph nodes in your neck, some joint pain, could have ear symptoms. These are things that you usually don't see with regular pneumonia. And the symptoms don't ever seem to get severe enough to cause a person to become completely bedridden. And so that's why they call it walking pneumonia. Now, mycoplasma is a type of species of bacteria, we talk about that in the book also, uh, that differ from other bacteria in that they lack a cell wall. Now, why does that matter? Microscopically, if you don't have a cell wall, well, there are some, there are some antibiotics like penicillin that work to kill bacteria by disrupting the cell wall. <clears throat> Mycoplasma doesn't have a cell wall to disrupt, so it's naturally resistant to penicillin-related drugs. So for that, you'd also want something like a Z-Pak, um, azithromycin, bird zithro, or uh, erythromycin, fish mycin. Those would be preferable for that. Then there's Haemophilus influenza. That looks like a cold at first. Uh, it has low-grade fevers, but it goes to the lungs in a few days, and then you start having difficulty breathing, some wheezing. The sputum has a tendency to be sort of grayish or beige in color, and this one also is a long-term thing. It's like a walking pneumonia, except you don't feel like walking. Uh, a cough can persist for weeks, honestly, unless you treat it. And for this, they're still using uh, penicillin-related drugs, uh, but sulfur drugs and tetracycline family drugs like doxycycline, uh, the Cipro family drugs, and the uh, Zithromax or uh, erythromycin antibiotics are also options for that. Now, why am I mentioning all these individual bacterial species and their signs? Because, very simply, different antibiotics are used based on the type. The ones that I mentioned are the ones that have specific symptoms that may point you in their direction and if you use the antibiotics that I mentioned for that uh, which all the, you'll find all this in our new book uh, well in that case you would have a better shot at helping your patient maybe a loved one recover so those are things that are very very important so 
scenarios where there is no chance of a lab study being done, you might want to consider, of course, there are penicillin family drugs, but maybe Keflex, which is sort of, has, a, has a little bit of cross-reactivity with penicillin. It's in the same family, sort of. There's about a 10% cross-reactivity, so if you're allergic to penicillin, you're going to, there's about 10% of people allergic to penicillin would be allergic to uh, Keflex, or Cephalexin is what its actual name is. Uh, azithromycin, sulfa drugs, all these things may be acceptable in scenarios where you're sort of wondering what it is that is actually going on. Uh, resistance to amoxicillin and some other fa penicillin family drugs is leading us to use them less often, at least in the U.S., because of resistance. And so that is a big issue. And, of course, in severe cases of pneumonia, usually they use intravenous drugs. And that's one of the hard realities that you're just going to have to deal <clears> with, <throat> is that some people may die of pneumonia that ordinarily would not have uh, if there was modern medicine available. And of course, as you know, we write about situations where you are plain old off the grid. Some disaster knocked you off the grid and you are on your own. Uh, there's other respiratory infections that are primarily bacterial. One is called epiglottitis. Now, what's the epiglottis? That's a structure at the base of your tongue that works as a valve that prevents food from going down your windpipe as you eat or drink. Now, when the epiglottis becomes infected, it can swell up. And when it swells up, well, gosh, it could be very dangerous and could block your airways. This is uh, something more common in kids, but we're increasingly seeing it in adults, and it represents a true emergency in both groups. Adult cases seem to develop a little more slowly than pediatric ones, though, so you may have some time to be able to treat that or be more successful in treating it with antibiotics. Uh, epiglottitis can start showing symptoms as soon as one or three days, uh, one to three days after exposure to the bacteria. And the symptoms usually include things like high fever, a very sore throat, difficulty breathing, a hoarse voice. If you have a little kid with a hoarse voice, then you know you may have an epiglottitis there. And people are agitated. They can't breathe, so they are freaking out. So this <laughs> is one of those things that you'll get. If, uh, maybe some of you might... Uh, may have had kids who had croup. I had both, all my kids had croup and we had to take care of them. That's also called laryngotracheobronchitis. And that is- um, Well, that's a mouthful. It sure is. But it's it, really a throatful. It's a throatful, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So uh, it's usually caught, well, the thing with croup is that it's usually mm -hmm. caused by a virus, but in some cases, staph or strep or hemophilus may be involved in rare bacterial cases. Now, epiglottis, uh, epiglottitis, that's treated by third-generation cephalosporins intravenously, usually, but in austere settings where modern IV therapy is not an option. Well, maybe sometimes clindamycin, fish sin, uh, might, be, might be considered as a possibility, although swallowing difficulties might make the strategy of using oral medicines at all sort of problematic. I have some good news. What? Speaking of fish sin... Yes. Fish antibiotic. Um, I just sent Tara her down payment for the book cover and formatting, and she is requesting information for the cover right now. Oh, yay. Good for us. So we can get started All today. Right. Well, that is really awesome, actually. <laughs> oh, and I have, I have good, this is good slash bad news. Our Kodak class is sold out in Tennessee. Oh, all right. Well, guys, our but, class in But if you want to drive 20th. a little bit 
further, I say a little bit because I drive that drive a few times a year. If you want to drive to South Florida, I have a handful of spots <laughs> left at our warehouse in Florida. Now, if right, that sells you. out, I can probably add a few more spots because we, you know, it's our warehouse and we can move things around. Uh-huh. Um, but well, yeah, yeah you like actually three or see. four spots in Weston. You can Florida. see the, the magical warehouse of mystery. Where it all happens. Yes. The magical kits get packed. Well, let's see. What else do I have? I've got uh, a whooping cough. Whooping. whooping cough, you know, also called pertussis. That's an infection of the airways caused by a bacteria called Bordetella pertussis. You don't see it too often because uh, a lot of people get their kids vaccinated against it. But uh, it is a pretty nasty thing. What happens is the, the germ attaches to the lining of the upper respiratory tract, you know, your windpipe and your back of your throat and things like that, and releases all these toxins, and that causes swelling. And so we're seeing more and more of these cases being reported in certain parts of the U.S., probably because uh, some people aren't vaccinating their kids so much anymore. Uh, and in this kind of infection, after an average of about 7 to 10 days after you've been exposed to it, uh, pertussis will sort of begin like a cold or a flu-like syndrome. You know, it has all the usual things, nasal congestion, a low-grade fever, a mild cough. And one of the funny things is that if you see it in kids, they have a little bit of apnea. You know what sleep apnea is. You stop breathing for a short period of time. That happens in kids that get sick with this whooping cough thing, with pertussis. Uh, after one or two weeks of that, well, what happens is pertussis becomes full-blown. It really gets bad. You get violent coughing fits that we call paroxysms. And these, boy, these if you ever heard this, these occur fast and furious, so much so that all the air in the lungs is expended. And when that happens, you got to breathe, breathe in, and it causes a high-pitched whooping sound, and it is terrible. A lot of patients vomit and they cough so much that these poor people become totally exhausted and of course become more likely to to have other infections opportunistically come in. And resolving this infection is sort of slow but can occur with antibiotics like like azithromycin, erythromycin, uh, sulfa drugs. may shorten the amount of time that somebody's at least contagious. It is highly contagious, by the way. It passes from person to person in air droplets. Just from the sheer number of coughing fits, there's just all of the this mucus and, and stuff, droplets in the air, and a lot of people get to coughing. And you should really need to isolate these people for at least two weeks after they start the cough. As a matter of fact, it recovery may take 10 weeks or more. In China, they call whooping cough the 100-day cough. That's the name of the wow. disease in China. Um, adult and teenagers, uh, those folks, uh, those adults and teenagers that have it, seem to have a little milder disease, disease course than young children. But, of course, it really could kill young children, t- sadly, in some serious, serious times. Now, I mentioned something about having to guess a little bit mm-hmm. about what, you're you're going to use as an antibiotic to get rid of a particular infection. Now, the truth of the matter is is that a lot of times in normal times in modern medicine, you've got all these lab studies. You can send a sample of the phlegm, 
right. to the laboratory, and in a day or two, they give you a presumptive diagnosis. And they not only give you a presumptive diagnosis, okay, this is strep, or this mm-hmm. is um, Klebsiella, or this is whatever bacteria, but they'll also give you a list of antibiotics that'll kill it. Now, Which is amazing. And by the way, I just want to mention, uh, of course, this is all with modern medicine. There are some really amazing things coming out with laboratory machines that will be able to, even within the doctor's offices, there won't be huge computers, but small little boxes, I guess, that will be able to take a sample. And within a very short period of time, and we're talking about maybe just a couple of hours, do exactly what you just said. Tell you exactly what's going on and perhaps what antibiotic will kill it. They have new, amazing, I don't know what it is that that happens in that magic box, but they're going to actually be able to diagnose what you have within a couple of hours of this, quote, culture. Normally, you've got to grow it. You have to grow it out first so they can actually see what's going on to diagnose it and then be able to test these antibiotics. So it's really incredible. We don't want modern medicine to go away. (laughs) It's saved a lot of lives and will continue to save lives. Um, But, but, you know, so without it, you're you're just kind of stuck listening to... These, these symptoms that you're discussing. And, and you're making an educated guess. Now, yeah. knowing the name of the species of bacteria, for uh-huh. example, that's causing a problem and having a list of the antibiotics that will kill it, that is what's known as definitive therapy. In other words, you know that it, your infection is caused by X, this bug. X, right. Right. X bacteria. And you know that right. X antibiotic We'll get rid of it. Right. Well, guess what you're not going to have if you ever wind up getting knocked off the grid because of some disaster. You're not going to have any of that. Right. And so you're never going there to really have... There won't be these fancy little machines, and there won't be those laboratories that all of our lab studies... When you have blood drawn at... Um, there's different ones. LabCorp, Quest, maybe even in your doctor's office or the hospital. Those things get sent to a laboratory that has... All kinds of amazing machines. Maybe your blood gets spun down. It gets separated. Right. It goes through all of these machines that are looking at it like that, and yeah. maybe growing things. And it's just incredible what happens. And, then, and and the end of that, sometimes within a very short period of time, minutes, they have lab results for you. But we may not have those. That's right. That exactly. That is the scary thing. And so definitive therapy goes out the window, and what you're left with is your knowledge, is your knowledge of symptoms, of the physical signs. That's why I mentioned a certain number of different antibiotics, uh, uh, bacterial species, not because you're going to be able to look at somebody and say they've you got have, a bacterial, right. they've got this bacteria, but because of the specific symptoms that those bacteria have that are a little different than just standard pneumonia. And there's subtle differences sometimes. Right, very subtle. Sometimes it's not even easy, and we do discuss this in the book, about whether to know if someone has an actual bacterial infection, which should be treatable with an antibiotic or a couple of different choices, or it's viral. Right. And, you know, really the only antiviral out there right now on the market is um, Tamiflu, and there's one other. What's the other one? 
I is uh, well, there are a number of uh, ones that will treat her herpes and those right, okay, that well, family. I'm of, specifically talking about the flu. Oh, relenza. Yeah, the other, relenza the and Tamiflu are basically the ones that you can get a hold of right. um, from your doctor, very or medical professional who prescribes. Uh, rather easily, right? Because you generally just from a phone comes. call because right. they don't even want you to come into the office. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, it sounds like you've got the flu. Uh, you know, your mom had the flu or your kid had the flu. I'm going to just call this in for you. Don't come in the office. Those are easy to get, but it's it's a lot of times hard. Let's say you've got a respiratory infection, for anyone even over the phone to know. You know, if you even if you're talking to a medical professional, whether it's a bacteria or a viral infection, they just they're similar. Right. So we do talk about that in the book and try to give you a sense of of paying attention to symptoms. Right. How fast did this come on? How sick is the person on day one? Did the fever gradually increase, or did you just slam get a hundred and four fever? I mean, these are some of the things we talk about. Right, and they'll help you put together what we call some kind of empirical right. diagnosis. Which is a good guess. In other words, a, a good educated guess, guess without <laughs> having all of the results in, because you're not ever going to have results in, <laughs> lab results right. in, 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 in a true disaster. But even the doctors do this in offices. And, yes. And I did this. We would say, well, you know, it, it sounds like what's going on is this problem. So I'm going to give you this antibiotic or this treatment, and we're going to Get you started, because I don't want you to get worse. And then, hopefully in a couple of days, two or three days, we're going to find out the actual problem just to make sure that our educated guess or our empirical guess right. was the right one. And we do did that a lot with, let's say, urinary tract infections. Uh, a lot of them are due to E. coli. A lot of them are uh, susceptible to sulfa drugs, and so we'd give Bactrim Receptor or right, some of those right. drugs. We talk about urinary tract infections in the book also. Well, um, yeah, I'll tell you what, there's nothing worse than having a urinary tract five minutes more than you have to. Right, have to wait three days it, no, or two days to no, figure out what the result was. Not only are you miserable with symptoms, but that can get worse and go into your kidneys. Oh, yeah. And even worse after that. Exactly so these right. these are not things to mess with. So anyhow, you're going to be dealing with a lot of empirical therapy with regards to a lot of the respiratory infections and a lot of the other types of infections that you're going to deal with. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to teach you how to identify things so you'll have the best chance of giving people, of getting to the right diagnosis and giving people the right therapy. You know, I'd like to talk a little bit now about a crisis that's been a problem for decades now, but it seems to be worsening every year, and that is the opioid epidemic. As a doctor and a part-time resident of the great state of Tennessee, I can tell you that this is a big problem, even in the areas that we're at, and it is getting bigger. Over the past few years, the opioid crisis has become a really a dramatic part of America's just history. I mean, some writers are calling it a symptom of well, cultural dysfunction or economic dysfunction. Other people think it's some kind of existential crisis because we've lost contact with each other, whatever that means. But, you know, the truth of the matter is it's killing people and we need to deal with it. Uh, President Trump is pretty optimistic about it. Declared declared last year that we can be the generation that ends the opioid epidemic. And, well, thanks to recent federal and state efforts, pretty extensive. They are doing their best. 
deaths from prescription opioids have decreased quite a bit. However, according to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, overdoses involving stronger synthetic opioids that are trafficked by cartels like Mexican cartels and, believe it or not, Chinese smugglers, even online vendors, those have risen by about 10%. So we have a few less deaths as a result of prescription drugs, opioids that have been given out, but we're getting more from the bad stuff. That is, or the worst stuff, actually, that these cartels are putting together. There are two types of synthetic opioids at the forefront of this surge, and that is fentanyl and carfentanyl. Uh, Fentanyl has near-immediate effects. It's really strong, stronger than morphine, and many varieties of heroin. Between 2015 and 2016, there were fentanyl deaths that were in the thousands, they doubled just in that one year, from 2015 to 2016. According to the Drug Enforcement Administration, fentanyl is so potent that it takes about two milligrams. That's the amount okay. that is equivalent in size. Get this to two to no to four grains of salt. Oh my god! So four grains of salt worth of this stuff could kill you. And unlike heroin, fentanyl is very easy to transport because of its being so potent. Fentanyl has a chemical cousin called carfentanil, and that has similar qualities. Just a single grain of it can be indeed lethal. It's no accident that these particular opioids are so popular. Regulations now that make prescribing opioids much harder than there have been. And so guess what happens when you do that, well, sure enough, this regulation has caused people to get more into the illegal opioids they can just get from their corner pusher. Almost half of the states in the U.S. and, and D.C. currently have regulated mandatory limits, three to seven day limits, bounding the amount of opioids that a doctor can prescribe a patient. In other words, you can gives you three to seven days worth of this particular opioid. And these recently instituted laws are responsible for a sizable reduction in overdoses from prescribed opioids, but the dark side is that they also encourage patients to turn to the black market for their fix. And overdoses as a result from the illegal opioids are rising quite steadily. Uh, these black market opioids are often trafficked into the U.S. in bulk by criminal smugglers. Cartels receive components of fentanyl and carfentanil from China. Guess what? China. I never really thought of China as a big importer of no, drugs. I know. But that No, indeed, I think of Mexico right. and Canada right. and South Florida That's as true. being how people get them in. Exactly. Or board, like border states, maybe like through the Gulf of Mexico, right. like boats traveling well, what happens is in Mexico, what they do is they get the ingredients from China and they turn it into a powder before smuggling the finished product across the U.S. border. And as an example of how much fentanyl makes it into the U.S. via cartels, state troopers in April seized 118 pounds of fentanyl in just one car, one, or actually a, a tractor trailer, during a traffic sp- stop. Mm-hmm. 118 pounds. Oh, my And gosh. you know what that is? That is enough fentanyl to kill 8% of the U.S. population. What? That is that's how crazy. deadly. That's how deadly this stuff is. 
Unlike heroin, 8%. yes. Wow. Uh, unlike heroin, fentanyl and carfentanil flow into the U.S. through traditional cartel routes, as well as a number of online vendors that accept this cryptocurrency payment type of payment that is sort of untraceable. There was a Senate report released earlier this year, for example, that said the majority of online fentanyl vendors that were investigated were found to be based in China. <laughs> hmm. These vendors sent their product to at least 300 people using nothing other than, guess what, the U.S. Postal Service. Wow. So you can get your fentanyl from oh Chinese goodness. vendors online, pay for it with, uh, I don't know, Ethereum or Bitcoin or something like that, and Jeez. get it right through our postal service. So we just don't realize how much drug traffickers exploit our natural mail system, our normal mail system, to ship fentanyl, fentanyl and other crazy drugs into the United States. The, the ability to detect small amounts of these drugs via conventional mail, as you can imagine, is pretty difficult to do. I mean, you'd have to, I don't even know if they have dogs that smell out fentanyl. It's really hard to do. It's I expensive well, and the, very invasive. Well, work. if you think about it, what you just said was it, it barely takes less than what you can see on the tip of your finger. To kill somebody. Can you imagine it might take one of those grains to kill a dog? So they can't possibly have dogs to sniff it out because they would just all die. Yes, you're absolutely right. Unless it was a very, very safe distance. If this dog gets close to where these drugs are, their nose sniffing could pull in the drugs that are even you know on the outside of clothing. Or, I mean, this is bad stuff. And what they're doing, too, is with some of this stuff, some of the fentanyl and some of the heroin now... What they're actually turning him into pills, into this counterfeit prescription type pill that makes these drugs really hard to detect. There's one variety called Mexican Oxy that's produced by the drug cartels in Mexico. Looks just like oxycodone, which is, of course, a drug itself. But the problem is, is that it contains heroin and fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And that makes it far more dangerous. And if you happen to take oxycodone well sure oxycontin sure enough what happens is, is you actually are taking heroin or you're actually taking fentanyl and that could easily kill you there's one guy who uh, came into a Mexican emergency room and the emergency room doctor said that he came in with multi-organ failure uh, what oh looked like a stroke and it looked like he had sepsis in other words an infection all over his body oh all at the same time that's how bad it looks. So, so scary, honey. So laws that make authentic oxycodone harder to get, well, they partially fuel the demand for these kinds of products. Now, granted, abuse of anything, prescribed medical-grade opioids, is a bad idea. However, in the same way that abuse of Jack Daniels versus homemade moonshine, which isn't held to federal or market standards, well, it's probably better to abuse Jack Daniels, I would guess, so... The question is, is access to real prescribed oxycodone preferable to the use of illicit fentanyl and carfentanil? Well, at least you know what you're getting. It's really a hard a hard thing to decide. But it's, it's really one of those things that's... Well, you know, it's like a monster in Greek mythology. There was a, a monster in Greek mythology called the Hydra, and it was a serpent-like creature. It had many heads, and the thing is, is when you cut off one of its heads two more would grow in its place. 
So like the Hydra of Greek myth, legislatures have taken their regulatory swords to prescription oxycodone, and they sure enough have fentanyl and carfentanil, two even more dangerous drugs, spring up in its place. So to defeat this Hydra, they have to somehow come to some kind of agreement with Chinese and Mexicans author Mexican authorities, both Chinese and Mexican authorities, sure enough, to cut off the supply chains of these illicit opioids while keeping at least some safe prescribed opioids available, opioids available under the stewardship of, well, legally accountable medical institutions. Well, hard, easy to say, very hard to do. Yeah. Uh, I want you guys to, out there to <clears throat> think about Kratom. That's a non-opiate non plant that seems to help those people who are addicted get off of the hard stuff. Can't grow it everywhere, apparently. We have a devil of a time with it, although it might be due to snails. So uh, let me tell you just a couple of ways to get rid of snails. Because <laughs> I'm annoyed at them. <laughs> and I want you to kill them. That's right. Uh, well, of course, a lot of people have heard of beer traps. And one of the most well-known ways uh, and effective ways to get rid of snail is to make a beer trap. Just place a saucer, bowl, or a bucket, depending on the size of your snail problem, I guess, of cheap flat beer okay in your garden leave it out out there overnight and the snails will be attracted to the smell of the beer and they'll climb into the saucer or bucket where they have a tendency to get i guess affected by the alcohol in some way i don't know if you can say they get drunk <laughs> but they fall in and they drown now if you aren't keen on wasting perfectly good beer on your garden snails i can understand Certainly that. You can make similar traps using grape juice or water mixed with, let's say, a half teaspoon of yeast and a, maybe a tablespoon of sugar. And okay. So that might do it as well. You can also try using copper. Copper is used by a lot of gardeners to repel snails and slugs. Uh, you can use copper in one of two ways. You can buy copper tape at a plant nursery and wind it around the perimeter of your vegetable patch or flower bed. Or you can sprinkle uh, copper pennies all around the base of the plants that you're trying to protect. Okay. So you can do that. You probably have collected quite a few pennies in your day, so maybe you can use them for that. Although how much copper they have in them these days, I'm not really sure. <laughs> uh, copper repels snails due to a reaction between the metal and the slime produced by the snail as it moves. It sends the snail sort of an unpleasant electroneural signal. And it's interesting because you know that they use... Uh, copper wiring to uh, in electricity. In, yes. Or electricians it can, use it, it copper conducts, wires. Yeah. That's conducts right. very well. So that's sort of interesting. It feels like, apparently feels like an electric shock to a snail, but I don't know how they found that out. <laughs> you, can't ask, you can't ask a snail. You don't think they did a study? <laughs> now, Someone spent a million dollars to find out if copper, copper will shock snails. Now here's something you can do. You can if you have some extra eggshells, you have, or or you got eggshells left over from making breakfast, sprinkle some of those crushed eggshells along the area near the where the stems of the plants are, and that is a pretty good thing to do because the eggshells have sharp edges and they feel unpleasant apparently under the snail's bodies, and they avoid trying to climb over them to get to a okay. particular plant and Sounds look, good. look Listen, for something else. Anything that will stop it. And that's pretty good, you know, because eggshells have a lot of calcium, and I think that nourishes your soil, doesn't it? Isn't that a good it, thing? Yes, but it take, takes a while for it to break down. That's oh, the only thing. <laughs> well, one thing Not that, readily available when it's in shell form. Well, one thing that does 
actually break down pretty quickly is mm-hmm. coffee and studies yes. at the U.S. right at the U.S. Department of Agriculture have shown that coffee is pretty effective at repelling and killing snails and slugs. You can use it one of two ways, and it's a fertilizer too. There you go. So it's twofold. Well, there you go. You can place some cooled coffee in a spray bottle and use it to spray plants, leaves, soil, and even the snails themselves if you want. And alternatively, you can sprinkle coffee grounds around the base of the plants that you want to protect from the snails, and that enriches the soils. Just That's soil. right. There we go. Just as you say. All kinds of goodness. Of course, you can encourage snail predators. We do. We have lots of little lizards around that like to eat snails, and so if you encourage gar- other garden creatures to hang around who snack on snails, that might be good. Frogs do that. We have toads, but we don't like the toads that we have. They're those bufo toads that are poisonous and can really really dip bad for dogs and things like that so that's something that you can actually do that uh, turtles will eat them garter snakes will eat them salamanders sometimes are, will eat them uh, a number of birds will eat them so this is something that would work of course chickens and ducks will eat snails and slugs they're yeah. actually pretty nutritious for those guys but then again, they can trample or eat your plants as well. So just be careful. <laughs> right. Be careful with that. And don't forget <laughs> diatomaceous earth. It's a great solution for getting rid of bed bugs, but also a great way to get rid of snails. Just make sure to buy the non-toxic food grade version. And don't that- breathe it in. Wear a mask. That's right. Do not inhale this. If it's windy outside, it's probably not a good idea to be spreading this stuff around. You do not want to inhale it. It's very bad for your lungs. I agree completely. Yes. Hey, you know what? We what? are pretty much out of time. We want to thank everybody for listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. We'll be back next week. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.